0: We have a lot of, I think, uh, new people or relatively new people or first time people. And that's really fun and really great and encouraging for us to be able to be together. We're glad that everybody's here and glad that we can be together to encourage each other in the Lord. So thanks. And uh, I hope the next few minutes we look at God's word will help us to be strengthened in our faith and in our our joy that we have in the Lord. So my grandmother growing up was great. Uh, she was a lot of fun. She was uh, kind of dangerous, too. She would always be wrecking her car, drive by the local elementary school, be like, hey, why is that pole that holds that awning for the kid? Why is that messed up? Yeah. Grandmother Hall drove through there the other day volunteering and stuff. Um, she was a giver. She liked to give stuff to all of us kids and she loved us. Uh, so I, I grew up in a small town. Uh, my dad and his brother both had several kids. There were several of us. So us cousins lived within a mile of each other. We'd hang out, do stuff. We'd go to her house. And uh, so holidays, she loved giving gifts to all of us. The gift she would give also reflected her, um, her love. And if I well, just say what it is, her rankings in the, in the city. So uh, holiday time, everybody's opening up a card from Grandma Hall. Oh, 20 bucks. Thanks, Grandma Hall. $20. And, of course, when you're seven, 20 bucks is a million dollars. You know, I can go to town at Toys R Us with this. So you're excited. But then uh, our oldest cousin, it would come to her. She'd open it up. And it wasn't a $20 bill in there, 20, 40, 50. She was number one. She was number one. And in case you're wondering if it was just a subtle thing, but first of all, she wasn't that much older than us. You know, she was like eight. The rest of us were six. Uh, But in case you were wondering if it was a subtle thing, it wasn't. Because grandmother, all she would say, she'd she'd she says about her elder son, my uncle, and about her eldest grandchild, uh, my cousin. She would say, I don't know. There's just, you love all your kids, but there's just something special about the first one. God, ooh, savage. I got to say, eventually, my cousin moved away, and then my other older cousin, he became the premier, you know, kind of thing. So, do you guys think God is like that? Does God play favorites? Good job with the head shakes. Except, you know, some people think that he does. And actually, they don't just make up that idea. How about this? What if the scripture said this? He will show mercy to whom he shows mercy, and he will harden whom he hardens. Doesn't that kind of sort of sound like God plays favorites? God just sits around. He decides. Sorry, you're out. Pardoned. good for you, you're in mercy and he just decides. Maybe that's how it works. And by the way, part of the point of this text is if that's how it works, then that's how it works. deal with it. You're the you're the clay. you don't have the right to talk back to God and say, why'd you do it this way? He's the maker, you're just the made thing. So if that's how God works if God is like a grandmother that plays her favorites, then, okay, I guess that's how it is. Uh, Okay, so I'm gonna go and give you the answer that I believe the scriptures teach. No, God doesn't play favorites, at least not in that arbitrary sort of way that we might think about. He just decides I'm gonna be nice to you for really no good reason, and I'm not gonna be nice to you. But I will say this text is challenging. And frankly, there are a lot of people who love the Lord, who believe and even teach that this passage, among others, but this one primarily, honestly, this one along with some things that are similarly stated in Romans 11, um, that they teach that God does indeed just is arbitrarily plays favorites, picks some people to be saved and chooses to condemn other people to go to hell. So what I'd like to do is for us to explore this text to have what I hope a true understanding of it so that we can answer this question for ourselves. And also whenever we're talking to others and preaching the gospel and talking with even others who love God and who may believe that God does indeed play favorites. I think it's important. If we want to believe all the stuff that Caleb read for us at the beginning of the service, the great confidence we should have in Christ, uh, we need to understand how uh, we can be saved, how we can be right with God, how we can be counted among his children. <laughs> so let's back up a little bit. And we've done this a couple of times in the past few weeks. And, of course, those of you who have been reading the book of Romans this month is our congregational reading. You've been considering what is. The, the question, what's the issue that people were talking about, what we're asking about? I think we need to do that. So here, here's basically the, the question, the issue in Romans. And you can test this out by reading it for yourself. But really, you got to read the book in its entirety, I think, to see some of what I'm going to say. But I'm just going to propose this for you and show you a couple of things in the book that I think highlight it. And you can uh, test it out for yourself to see whether it's true. Um, So Paul is running around preaching, according to chapter 1 and verse 16. The good news is that Jesus is king. And anyone who believes in him, anyone who puts their faith in him, anyone who becomes loyal to Jesus Christ will be saved. Jew, Greek, who cares? Doesn't matter. If you're loyal to Jesus, you're one of God's children. You're made righteous in the sight of God. You've been saved from sin and death. Now, a lot of Jewish people. uh, And of course, imagine you're a Jewish person. For centuries, you've been reading these scriptures where God said to your forefather, Abraham, in you and in your descendants, all the nations will be blessed. And you remember the Exodus story where God said to Israel, not to all the nations, but to only you, that you will be the kingdom of priests. You will be the holy nation through whom the prophets would say, like in Isaiah 49, you're going to be a light to the nations. Blessing will come through you. But then Paul is rolling up into town saying, no, not anymore. Blessing isn't through the Jews, blessing is directly through Christ. That doesn't sound right, Paul. God didn't say there would come a time. There was no expiration date on all those promises made to Abraham and at Mount Sinai and in the prophets. How can this be true? Because what you're saying sounds like we're pretty much like everybody else. We're sinners and we're condemned like everybody else. And so not only, well, we're condemned, we're in sin, we're condemned to death and hell, just like everybody else. But also, we aren't a special vehicle for to bring blessing to the nations. And God promised both those things to us, that we would be righteous and special in his sight because we're the nation of Israel, we're Jews. And secondly, that we would be the vehicle of God's blessing. And you're saying, according to the gospel, both of those are untrue. And Paul, honestly, I can't believe in the gospel because of that. Because what you're saying is making God out to be a liar. That's what you're saying. That's why Paul would say, Listen. Let God be true, though every man be a liar. Everybody's a liar. Uh, not uh, not Jesus. Not God. But this is the challenge. This is the tension that's going through this uh, this letter, and he's trying to address exactly that question. Let me just decline. I don't know if you had it You get what you get. Know what I'm saying, and you get how that would be stressful. For the Jews They're like, listen, we already began to believe in Jesus and love Jesus, but we can't get on board with this idea that all those promises of ancient times are just gone. That's the question, and that's the issue. Can I point something out? I think most of the time, I can raise my hand. Maybe a lot of you can raise your hand. When you read the book of Romans, what you gravitate toward is, oh, this is a book about how I can be saved and how I can be made righteous or how I could tell someone else how to be made righteous. Does the book of Romans teach stuff about that? For Sure. But that's not really the issue that Paul's addressing. Here's why that's significant. I want to I, I don't know if this analogy is gonna work, but maybe it will. And uh if it doesn't work, then just ignore it and move on. But here, here's what I can imagine. Let's say I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know what? I'm not very good at personal finance, like budgeting, day-to-day spending patterns, all that kind of stuff. I need to learn how to manage my money on a day-to-day basis, you know. And I go around searching for something to help me, some document to guide me in how to be better about my financial sensibilities. And I come across a document about long-term financial investment. Is that document going to help me in my day-to-day spending? Whether or not I spend all that money at the store or online shopping or how to set a budget? It might. It might. I bet that document will say things about personal thriftiness and uh, about how to be responsible and stuff like that. And I probably will be able to take concepts from it and apply them to my spending and it'll help. But if that document is really written about long-term investment, it's going to have a bunch of stuff that have really nothing to do with my day-to-day spending patterns. And worse yet, if I think, oh, this is about day-to-day spending, then actually that document may trip me up and confuse me. I'm going to read stuff about investing in Bitcoin and I may think, okay, I guess I should use change and not paper bills or cards because that's coin and it's little bits. That's not what he's been talking about. Or I may read something about embracing risk in the marketplace. And I think, well, I guess next time I go to the supermarket, I should just give a stranger my wallet for an hour and embrace risk in the marketplace. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about something entirely different. You get the point. It's important. I think when we read any document to understand the purpose for which the document was written. And then we can glean other things, perhaps, from it, but understand the picture. So that's why I want to point out to you that the book of Romans is not primarily about, hey, how do you, a lost sinner, get saved? It has a lot to say about that. But the primary question is, has God really kept his promises? Because he said that we Jews were right in God just because we were Jews, descendants of Abraham. And he said that we would be the blessing for all the nations. And Paul, you're preaching the gospel. It sounds like that's not true. That's what Paul is addressing. That's why he says at the beginning of chapter nine these words I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, not for the sake of all people, he says, though I'm sure he would. But look at what he's addressing for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. To whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all those guys. And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Do you see the conversation? The conversation is about what about those promises? What about the Jews and their place in God's plans? Verse six. And Paul wants to clarify this. It's not as though the word of God has failed for they are not Israel, all Israel, who are descended from Israel. He's saying, listen, God did not break his promises. That's what I'm telling you guys. The gospel of anything proves that God's promises came true, not that they were all a lie. All right, that still doesn't answer what's going on with this section, where it sure enough sounds like God's playing favorites. So let's go ahead and look at this text and try to learn some principles for how God chooses, because this is a passage about God's choice. As Michael pointed out, This reading is very explicitly about God making choices about who will be in his family and who will not. That's God's choice. It's his family. And he does make that choice. And all of us need to understand that and submit to that choice. How does God go about his purpose of election, as the text will say? Let's keep reading uh, beginning in verse 7. And we're going to draw four principles of this to try to understand what this text is teaching us. Romans 9 and verse 7. Uh, He continues, says, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But it's through Isaac that your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I've hated. All right, Uh, what's the first lesson we learn about God's choice, God's election of his people, his family, who belongs to him? What do we learn here? First principle we need to understand is that God chooses Through the word of his promise, not through human beings, human flesh, human will, whatever. God chooses through the word of his promise. These examples that he gives uh, prove that to us. Well, actually, back in verse 6, we see that. He doesn't say it's not as though the fleshly line of Abraham has failed. He doesn't say that. He says it's not as though the word of God has failed. God chooses his people based on the word of his promise. All these examples highlight that. These are Old Testament examples that I encourage you to read if you're not familiar with these stories. I'm going to try to give a short version of them. But if you don't know them, go back to the book of Genesis sometime and read about them. And they're really, really faith-building, really important stories, actually. Uh, anyway, um, so verse 7. Not all, they are not all children of Abraham who came through Abraham. Abraham's first offspring, his first son, according to the flesh, was a boy named Ishmael. Ishmael. Now, here's the problem with Ishmael. There's nothing wrong with him intrinsically, I don't suppose, as far as we know. Anything about his character even that much, although he, he was like all kids. He had some issues. You can read about that. <clears throat> but the thing that was wrong about Ishmael was God didn't say anything about Ishmael. See, what happened is God had promised Abraham and Sarah, two very old people, you're going to have a child. And they had a hard time believing it. Abraham, even on one occasion, said, listen, God, I don't think it's working out. I've got this guy who works in my house, in my household. Let's make him my heir and he'll carry on the promise that you've made to me. He'll carry it on. God said, no, you're going to have a kid. Look up at the stars. See all the stars? That's how many descendants you're going to have. You're going to have a child. Well, a while goes on longer. And Sarah says, I don't know. I don't think it's working out. Here's what you should do. You sleep with my servant girl, Hagar, and have a child through her. And God said, no, again, because you're making the choice. It's through your flesh. I said that you were going to have a child with your wife. You're choosing to do it your own way. That's not how I'm going to do it. And so that's where this quote in verse 7 comes from. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. There was nothing, oh, Isaac's a more important, we need a pure flesh or whatever. It wasn't anything like that. It was just God said this was how it was going to happen. You decided to go do it your own way. That's not right. Because God's election, God's choice, God's plans come true through the word of his promise not through human will, not through human flesh. That goes on, that's verse eight. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise, the word of his promise are regarded as God's family. Verse nine, he comes again and, and references this uh, promise. At this time, Sarah will have a son. This is a quote from Genesis chapter 18. But then he goes to the next uh, the next line of the fathers, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse nine, excuse me, verse 10, it says, Rebecca also, she had twins. Just special. So God had promised, Abraham, you're going to bless all the nations. You're going to bring about salvation to the world. And it's going to come through what I say, not the way you think. So it's going to come through Isaac, not through Ishmael. But then uh, Rebecca is pregnant with twins. And I actually want to read this one for you in a second here uh, because it's significant. And and, uh, Well, actually, we'll do it here in just a minute. Let's let's look at this. and We're going to go back to Genesis here in a minute. Um, God specifically said there are two nations in your womb. And it's not going to two children. It's not going to be the older who will be the one that inherits the promise. It's going to be the younger. Why did God do it that way? Why didn't he just let it ride? Why did he have to do that? God was making a point. He wasn't saying, I don't like that Esau kid in the womb. He's really a bad kid already. No, there's nothing in the text indicates that. The reason God did it was to further make his point. It's not going to be by your flesh. By the flesh, by nature, we might say, naturally. Esau would be the one that would inherit the promise and carry it forward to bring blessing to all the nations. But God wanted to make his point abundantly clear. We're not doing it your way. We're not doing it according to the way the world works. We're doing it according to my rules. So I'm going to flip this thing upside down and make it the younger who will serve, uh, excuse me, the older who will serve the younger. Uh, God chooses through the word of his promise, not through the flesh. All right, so that's number one. God chooses through the word of his promise, not through human flesh. Principle number two, God chooses to bestow divine blessing upon classes of people, not primarily through individual people, through classes of people, not through individual people. And you might say that does not sound correct, brother, because right here it says, "Uh, Jacob, I have loved Esau. I have hated. That sounds like an individual. Okay, fair enough. Let's go back and look at what these texts are saying. Go back to Genesis 20. We're coming right back to Romans 9, but I want us to venture back into the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 25. Remember what I told you about God saying, hey, we're not going to do it according to the flesh. Esau is not going to be the boss. Jacob is going to be the boss. The younger is going to be the one that rules over the older. But I want you to go back to Genesis 25, the first time Jacob and Esau are talked about. Actually, their names aren't even Jacob and Esau at this point. They're just the twins in the womb. But in Genesis 25 and verse 23, the Lord comes to talk to Rebecca about what's going on. And he says in verse 23, Genesis 25, verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations, two nations, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples, you might say people groups, will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. You tell me, is God talking about individuals or classes of people, groups of people, according to this? At this point, they are only two individuals. These guys are just two individual people inside their mother's womb. And yet God already is speaking about the future of the classes of people that will come from them. Do You see that? And he says the older, and here it's very clear, the older what? The older people group, the older nation will serve the younger nation. It's not the older uh, son will serve the younger son, though to some extent that happened. I will tell you when you read the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob falls down on his face before his older brother Esau. So actually when the individuals were rolling around, it kind of sort of looked like Esau was the one running the show still. This promise is not about the individuals. It's about the classes that would come from them, the people groups that would come from them. Now, you might say, what about that line that says, Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I have hated. Sounds individual to me. Doesn't sound like a group to me. Go to the end of the New Testament. Malachi chapter one. That's where this quote comes from. Malachi chapter one. Uh, Sorry, uh, not New Testament. That's Revelation, Old Testament. My bad. Uh, Malachi chapter one. Malachi chapter one. I want you to listen to this quote. And uh, notice what, what we learned from this and how it relates to this, uh, this concept here about how God makes his election of his people, how God chooses. Malachi 1, verse 1. This is, by the way, hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later. The kingdom of Israel has been in existence. It's gone through ups and downs. It's gone into captivity and come back again. Jacob is a distant memory. Esau is a distant memory by this point. And now God speaks, uh, verse 1. Malachi 1, verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel. If I can just say something briefly, Israel was the name that Jacob adopted. Eventually, he was given, uh, he received from God. And then the nation that descended from him began uh, became known as Israelites, people of Israel. Now, whenever it's being used, it's clearly about the nation. He's not speaking to Jacob. Jacob's been gone from the earth, at least for a long time. He's speaking to Israel, the people that descended from Jacob. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved me? Us. We're talking about the group here. How have you loved us? God responds. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau and have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Then look at this, verse four. Though Edom, that's the nation, uh, the descendants of Esau were Edomites. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will rebuild, uh, we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down and men will call them wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. All right, here's our quote from Romans 9. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Was it that God said, I hate that man Esau, and I'm going to destroy that man. And I love this man, Jacob, and I'm going to do good for him. Actually, again, whenever you read the stories of Jacob and Esau, though Esau and Jacob actually for a lot of his life were in rebellion against God, God blessed them tremendously and did good to them as individuals. But here we see the group, God says, there's one group, the descendants of the word of promise, Abraham, Abraham. Through Isaac, not Ishmael, because the word of his promise, through Jacob, not Esau, because the word of his promise, the people groups that descended from them, they're the ones that received divine blessing. It's not the individuals that were either blessed or cursed. It's the groups that came from them, the class of persons that came from them. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. And you don't have to agree about what I'm saying it makes sense. You need to test this out and see if it's true. See if it's true. Go back to Romans 9. Romans nine, or we got two down, two more concepts to go. Then let's start seeing what all this means for us. Uh, Okay, so concept number one, God chooses not through the flesh or through human will. God chooses through the word of his promise. It's not gonna be through Ishmael. It's not gonna be through your ideas. It's gonna be through what I promised, through your wife, Sarah, her son, Isaac. Word of his promise, not through the flesh. Concept number two, God bestows divine blessing to classes of people, not just individuals. Concept number three. Now you might say, well, we've already talked about this a little bit here, but there are a lot of individuals and Jacob and these aren't the only ones. What about the ones that Michael read for us in verses 14 and following, where it speaks about Moses. He was an individual. And Pharaoh, also an individual. How about that? What's going on there? It looks like God is just choosing arbitrarily. I'm going to bless you as an individual. And Pharaoh, sorry, man. You're you're toast. It's over. Um, so here's the third concept. I think is important for us to understand about God's choice. God chooses. Uh, the people through whom he will bless the world and who he will bestow blessing based on their choice. Now, oh, that sounds messed up and weird because you say, wait a second, I thought this was God. I thought God was the potter and we we're the clay. Clay doesn't get to choose anything. When I was in high school, I worked at this little living history museum. There's one guy who worked as a potter. He worked an old school pottery wheel, and we just sit there and I watch him. That 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 clay. And it, you, some of you have gone to pottery classes and you made some mangled thing that you put on your you know your shelf to look whatever. That potter that potter didn't have any choice. You just do it. Right? Um, so maybe that's what God's saying. You don't have any choice. Well, the two examples that He uses here in verses 14 and following, Moses and Pharaoh, are significant. Uh. What was Moses like before he received mercy from the Lord? By the way, that quote in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. If you could file that away because uh, that's significant about the context of that as well. Um, yeah, Moses, what kind of guy was he? And Moses wasn't just out there in the fields being, he was a little bit, but he wasn't just out there in the fields acting a fool, being all kinds of sinful. He wasn't perfect, man. He was a sinner like all of us. But before Moses was ever shown the mercy of God to be called into service, to deliver Israel out of slavery and all that sort of thing, Moses was a man of faith. I know that because Hebrews chapter 11 teaches that Moses got faith from his mom and dad, who were people of faith and did not fear Pharaoh. They didn't fear the threat of the king. And they passed that on to their son who had Moses uh, who had faith enough to leave Egypt. You know the story of him leaving Egypt, it only looks bad in the Exodus account. It looks like he was just a vengeful dude who killed a guy and ran away. He did do that. That's not the that's not incorrect, but there was more to the story. Hebrews 11 fleshes it out for us, beginning in verse 23 and following, what it says is that Moses refused to be counted as a son of Pharaoh. I'm not going to be a part of this. I'm one of God's people. And he went to visit his brethren, caring about them, thinking about them prior to them. in other words he was a man of faith. His faith wasn't all that it needed to be. We see that throughout the Exodus story in the Old Testament. But Moses already had chosen God. He was seeking after God. He was pursuing God. And God chose to show Moses mercy. In a similar way, Pharaoh, who the scriptures say repeatedly that God hardened his heart. If you are if you get to feeling icky about that or strange about that, you shouldn't. The scripture says that a bunch of times. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's what happened. Okay? But what was going on with Pharaoh before God was doing all that? First of all, whenever Moses showed up, before God ever touched Pharaoh, before the scripture says that God did anything to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5, Moses showed up and said, hey, Yahweh says, let my people go to offer sacrifices. Wasn't even the whole deal. They were, I guess, breaking it easy to him about letting them go forever. But just let him go. To our, and here was Pharaoh's response. You, some of you may remember this, but here's what Pharaoh said. Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him. I don't know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. He didn't care. He wasn't interested. And by the way, I'll add this. So my point is, he had already chosen to posture himself against God. He wasn't interested. Ooh, there's a God that I don't know about. Tell me about him. I may need to repent. There wasn't any of that. He had already chosen to be his own God, to do whatever he wanted. So yeah, God hardened that kind of heart. God has chosen to harden that kind of heart. Um, And I'll add this that the text goes on in the book of Exodus, as much as it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, there's two other ways that is described, Pharaoh's hardening. One is, it will just say, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Not that God did it, but it it happened. And the other thing is, the text also says in Exodus, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Do you hear that? God didn't say, Pharaoh, I know you love me so much and you wanna serve me, but sorry, buddy, I gotta use somebody to punish and I gotta have a vessel of wrath to show off how powerful I am, so you're toast. That's not how God works. God chooses who will be a part of his people and who will not based on people's choices. Do you want to be a part of that class of those who are blessed? You have the choice of whether or not you want to be a part of God's people or not. Same thing with, you might say, well, I don't know how that worked with like, it was Abraham's descendants, Isaac's descendants, Jacob's descendants, sound like you had to be a part of this pure Israelite line. Not so. All throughout history, there were people who were non-Israelites who chose To become part of the chosen people. You get what I'm saying? Say, here's where the blessing is. Here's where it's happening. So Rahab, she's a pagan. She's a prostitute. But she said, I know about your God and I want to soften my heart before him. I want to be open to him. What can we do about that? Come on in. And actually, she becomes a part of the, not just a part of the nation. She becomes a part of the royal line. And there are many other examples like that. God chooses. God has chosen, I should say, those who choose him. You get what I'm saying? All right. So that's principle principle. Number one, God chooses based on the word of his promise, not on human will or human flesh or anything like that. God chooses based on the word of his promise. God chooses people groups, classes of people, not you're in, you're out arbitrarily, individually like that. And when it comes to individuals, God has chosen those who choose him. And as this text makes clear, he is also chosen to punish and to harden those who reject him. Again, I do not want us to run away from that. And many other scriptures beside this point that out. By the way, may that be a warning to all of us. God has made a choice that if you choose to harden your heart against him, he will harden you further. Someone said that on judgment day, there will be two types of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. If you say, I don't wanna listen to God, I don't wanna serve him. God will not only allow you to do that, he will further enable you to do exactly what you want. That's the story here that we see of God's election. Our last thing that I'll say about God's election, and then we'll try to bring this home with some principles for us. That'll help us. I hope God chooses to exclusively use some people in order to extend his blessing to all people. That's where, again, this individual stuff, there's a lot of individuals. So I don't want to pretend like that's not a part of the story. But remember I told you verse 15 was important. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's a quote from Exodus 34. Here's what is happening in Exodus 34. Excuse me, Exodus 33 and leading into Exodus 34. Uh, Beginning of the book of Exodus, children of Israel in slavery. God says, Moses, go to Pharaoh. Moses and Pharaoh duke it out. Really, it's God just punishing Pharaoh over and over again. He won't learn his lesson. And then Exodus 14, children of Israel are liberated. They pass through the Red Sea. They come to Mount Sinai. God gives them the covenant. You're going to be my special people to make you my kingdom of priests. But they immediately, right after they get the rules from God, they start worshiping an idol, something from their past. And God punishes them. And God actually says, you know what? This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. I'm not going to be able to go up with y'all because I'm holy. And if you're going to rebel against me, it's going to be just like Pharaoh in Egypt. Moses begs and pleads, don't leave. If you don't go with us, we can't go. And then Moses makes a request of God. Moses, who's sort of the the face of God to the people, if if I can say it that way. I don't mean it in a a blasphemous sort of way. But Moses is the one who's representing God to the people. Moses says to God, show me your glory. Show me. Let me see you, God. Let me see you. Let me know you more than I've ever known you. And it's in that context that God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy." And I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. What was the mercy that God was showing there? What was the compassion that God was showing there? To make himself known. And by the way, it wasn't like Moses like, you know what, God, you're right. I'm the only people that kind of get on my nerves. I'd love it if you and I could just go and just be together. Could you show me your glory? No. Moses was asking God, show me your glory so that I can make it further known to the people and the work that I'm doing and strengthen me to be able to do my work. God chooses to use individuals in special ways, exclusively choose them in order to inclusively bless all peoples. That's the whole deal with Pharaoh, verse 17. For this purpose, I raise you up to demonstrate my power in you. Here was this hardened, ungodly, rebellious man. And God said, you know what? I'm going to give you power. I'm going to let you run the world, basically, in that. So that, what? My name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God used Moses, who was a godly man, a faithful man, to make his glory known to the people through his mercy and compassion toward Moses. God also made his name known through Pharaoh, whom he used to show his power and his might and his justice and his wrath against sin. It goes on to talk about this again in verse 22, where it says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so, why? To make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. God has done all that he's done to make things about himself known. And yeah, he used individuals like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Pharaoh and Rahab. And we could go on down and David and all down the list. He's done that. But it wasn't to be like, here's the favorite grandchildren over here. The rest of y'all, tough luck. That's not the story. The story is look at what I'm doing, y'all. Look at what I'm doing. And I want all of y'all to get over here, come over here, stop staying over there and come over here, come into the family, come into the place where I've dictated the terms through the word of my promise. And I want you all to get in here because there's a whole group. It's not just arbitrary individuals. There's a class of person that my word is outlined that I want. And I've used all these individuals to demonstrate my glory in all the earth. And Paul brings it home in verse 24, even us whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. All peoples are welcome in here, if we'll accept it. God chose Abraham, an exclusive choice, in order to, he said, bless all nations and inclusive, bring in all people. God hardened Pharaoh. That was an exclusive hardening. Pharaoh especially got hardened in order that he would be able to free the Israelites and thus allow them to survive and bring blessing to all the nations, inclusive. You see what I'm saying? This notion that God is this arbitrary grandparent who picks some kids to love and some kids to not love is not true to the scripture. And I hope you can see from this uh, attempt to to unpack that in this scripture, uh, I hope you can see it here. If you still question that, I'd encourage you to just start reading your Bible, the whole thing, and open yourself up to the notion that no, maybe God doesn't play favorites and notice how he works all throughout history. He doesn't do that. He's not arbitrary. He doesn't dictate this. What he said is I have chosen through the word of my promise that any who choose me, they'll be in my people. They'll be blessed. They'll be saved now and forever and bring salvation to all other people. That's the story. All right. So just to review before we try to bring this home with what this should mean for us. God chooses through the word of his promise, not through human flesh or human will. God chooses to bestow divine blessing to classes of people, to people groups or a people group, as we'll see in just a second, not just individuals sort of arbitrarily, or we might say randomly. God chooses individuals to be part of the blessed group depending on their choice. He has chosen those who choose him. And God chooses to exclusively use some at some times in order to bring blessing to all. What should this mean for us? Well, first of all, uh, I guess I'll give the answer. Yes, God does play favorites. Back to our original question. God does play favorites. You know who his favorites are? Prostitutes who say, no more. I'm giving my life to the king of kings, like Rahab. Murderers like Moses, who didn't quite know how to do it, but he didn't want to remain in Egypt. He wanted to suffer reproach with God's people. Liars. Like Jacob, that was literally what his name was. Selfish people, greedy people, old people, young people, people from every corner of the globe. Those are the people that God plays favorites with. But not because they do all the bad things. That's not it. God hasn't chosen it. Oh, all of you who do the worst sins. You will be blessed so I can show off. And actually, God could have done it. You ever thought of that? God could have said, you know what? I'm going to save those who commit the worst sins because wouldn't that show God's grace to the greatest extent, perhaps he could have gone the other way. He said, I'm going to favor those who are the the best people, the most morally upright people. But he didn't, and, and, and in that way, I'm going to prove my justice and show off how righteous I am because these are my children. This is what I'm all about. He didn't choose that either. What God chose according to the word of his promise is that according to the good news of Jesus Christ, That all who believe in him, all who give their lives to him, all who are loyal to him will be his children. The way it says it in Romans 8 and verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he had predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that the son would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. God had this vision. Those who devote themselves to my son, that's going to be my people. And I don't care what they're like. I don't care how much money they have. I don't care what country they come from. I don't care what language. I don't care how skilled they are. I don't care what bad stuff they did before. If they come in faith and submission and devotion to my son, Jesus Christ, that's my people. That's the word of my promise. That's who I have chosen. Those people who have chosen Jesus, those are the ones that I have chosen to be my people. And what that means for us now is, one, if you have not chosen Jesus Christ, please do. Please do. You may think, I'm not good enough. Well, you know what? It's not according to your flesh that decides whether you get to be in God's family or not. It never was. It's according to the word of his promise. And his promise is that in Jesus Christ, you can have your sins forgiven. That in Jesus Christ, you can be restored and made holy and made right. Why would you not come? But if you are in Jesus Christ, if you have chosen him, it means that you should have supreme confidence. The people that Paul was arguing with were so confident in God's covenant with Israel that they couldn't even accept the gospel. They were at least beginning to question it. What you're saying sounds like it violates what we know we have as Jews. We should have that kind of confidence where we say, man, look at what we have in Jesus Christ. And can I just tell you, that's what Romans chapter eight is so beautiful about it. Verse one of Romans chapter eight, therefore there is now no condemnation, none, zero, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have chosen to be a part of the chosen group, those who have chosen to be this class of people, people from all nations, but the class of persons, those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You go on down a little further in this text where he says, in verse 10, he says, if Christ is in you, if you're a part of the group, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will, will, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do we have that kind of confidence that we're not worried about what's going on? Oh, I messed up. Well, you know, you're in Christ Jesus. Repent, confess, move forward. I'm so scared of death. Why? Why? You're a part of Jesus Christ, God's spirit. Whatever happens to you, you're gonna be raised up from the dead in the end and be with him. You have nothing to fear. You have all confidence because you're a part of God's people. He, you're, You've been elected by God to be a part of his chosen group in giving yourself to Jesus Christ. He goes on and talks about how we're not, we don't have to be slaves to sin and the beautiful text that was read for us at the beginning of our worship. Verse 35 again, who will separate us from that love? Who will separate? You know what? No Jews ever thought they were going to separate from the love of God. Now, their reason was because we're descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So God loves us. And honestly, they kind of got that all twisted, thought they could just do a bunch of bad stuff because they were Jews. And that was good enough. That's all it took. That's not what we learned, because being in Jesus Christ is loyalty to Jesus Christ. But here's the point. If you're in Jesus Christ, you should have supreme confidence that God does love you. And no matter how bad you've been or what's messed up in you now, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, outside circumstances, can that mess up your relationship with God? No, God's chosen you in Jesus Christ. None of that stuff can take you away. Even if you feel like, verse 36, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Hey, it's fine because God has made you a part of his family. You're a part and his word will not fail. Verse 37, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer Through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The election of God, the choice he has made, that all those who are in Christ Jesus are his children, should give us supreme confidence every day of our lives of what we have. All right, so the election of God. If you're not in Christ, choose to be a part of God's chosen people, come to Jesus, give your life to him, be baptized in Christ, repent of your sins, believing in him. If you're in Christ, live in a confident manner, knowing what you have in Christ. But two more things I want to suggest. If we are the chosen children of God, then we need to choose the children of God as well. You get what I'm saying with that? Who do you feel most loyal to, most intimate with? most uh, responsible for. Some of us would say, well, you know, my my wife and kids, my, my, my parents, uh, my, my roommate, my neighbors, my friends, my coworkers, you should feel responsible for all those people, especially if they're in Christ. But even if they're not, you should feel responsible for them if God's put them in your life. But our deepest connections and bonds, the people that we have the greatest responsibility and duty for and the greatest intimacy with, are those whom God has chosen as our brothers and sisters. This is why later in this book in Romans where Paul, he builds up all this doctrinal stuff. And then he does the stuff where you're like, why are you talking about Jews and Greeks working together on cultural and ethnic differences? Because you guys have all been chosen by God. So now you're going to have to choose to get cool with each other. And that's a lot harder. You know, love in the family of God is hard. Love in your family is like, well, I got to deal with these people, you know. I got to go give grandmother all the kids, even though she's shortchanging and kind of telling me I'm a little bit trash compared to the other cousin. But, you know, we love her because it's family It's all right. It's no problem. But, you know, sometimes and this is wrong. Uh, but sometimes when it comes to God's people, we say, well, I don't want to be that close with those people because whoever those people are. There's no those people in the family of God. There's us. God has chosen us who have chosen Jesus Christ. So whatever your ethnicity is, whatever your economic situation is, whatever your family situation is, whatever your work is, whatever your personality is, whatever your interests are, whatever your length. I don't care. You're a part of God's chosen people. And now it's your duty. It's my duty for us to choose one another every day. We choose to love each other. We choose to support each other. We choose to challenge each other and help each other just like family because God has chosen us to be his family. Last thing. Remember what I said that God chooses exclusively in order to include all. I'll just tell you, only those who are in Christ Jesus will be saved in the end. Only. God has exclusively made that choice. But we shouldn't sit back and be like, man, I love being saved. We should say that. We do still have joy, and we should say that. I love being saved. I love being confident, and I love the family we get to have, all these different people who love God and love each other. I love that. Listen, God did not choose us exclusively, so we just sit back and get all fat and happy with how much we like being saved. God has chosen his people. Well, all the way back to Abraham. What was the promise? I will bless you and I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. Sounds good. I'm getting blessed. And in you, all nations will be blessed. The reason God has saved us and what we should relish in our salvation and the relationships we're building with each other is not just so we will enjoy it, though we do enjoy it. It's so that more and more people would know the Lord through us, that they would see him through our forgiveness and our restoration. And yes, our joy and our hope and our peace, that they would see something and be drawn to that and that we would welcome them with open arms and say, hey, you want to be a part of the, the class of the blessed people? Come to Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, be baptized into Christ and let him change you and let him join you to God's family. God has blessed us so that we would be his blessing to all nations. The promise of Abraham is should be is being fulfilled right now through us as God has put us on the earth to be a light to the nations. Isn't that what Jesus said? Y'all are the light of the world, Jesus said. That's what this is about. I didn't include you just so you could feel special. You should feel special and try to bring as many others in as possible into this family. May God help us to accomplish his purpose, to let the purpose of his election come to fruition so that he'll be a father that brings more and more and more children into his family and his name will be glorified now and forever. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodwill. And we praise you for choosing us. We have done nothing except everything to not deserve. Blessing from you, salvation from you. We know that we're unrighteous. And each one of us have been sinners and are too often people who fall in sin. But by the word of your promise, you give us hope. You give us peace and you give us joy in Jesus Christ. So I pray, Father, that you would increase our faith, each one of us, so that we would continue to choose him and choose you and not turn back to a world of sin and death, but that we would be a part of your people. And as your children, Father, I pray that you'd increase our love and devotion to one another Even as you've been devoted to us, I pray that you'd also make us more and more able to demonstrate to the world your goodness and that you're a father who wants to welcome everyone home who will receive your your truth and receive your grace. Give us strength, God. Give us courage in this world and give us rest in your choice for us and your love for us each and every day. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen.